Now let's uh, turn for our uh, second reading, just a very brief reading. Let's turn to the passage that we've been looking at for the last few weeks, John chapter 9. The Gospel according to John and chapter 9. We're just going to read the concluding verses of the chapter, but just very briefly to remind you that uh, the chapter contains an account of the healing of a man who was born blind. The Pharisees investigate the healing um, because they are already opposed to Christ and because he healed on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees are trying to prove that this man had not been born blind and uh, their judgment becomes very convoluted. But the incident ends with the man being expelled uh, from the synagogue. In other words, he is excommunicated out of the church. But um, Jesus finds the blind man after he has been excommunicated. And in verse 35, we begin the reading where Jesus hears that he has been cast out of the church. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And when he had found him, he said to him, do you believe in the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. Then he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be made blind. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say we see, therefore your sin remains. May he bless uh, that reading to us and our thoughts again go back to the verse 39 where Jesus says, I have come into this world for judgment. For judgment I have come into this world that those who do not see may see and that those who see may be made blind. And especially again today, the last part of the verse that those who see may be made blind. Now, as we've seen uh, with God's help over previous weeks, the verse here speaks of two classes of people, the blind and the seeing. And both are in some sense judged by the coming of Christ into this world. For judgment I have come, that the seeing may be made blind, and that the blind may see. Um, Christ coming for judgment is perhaps a difficult thing to understand, but we've seen that what it means really is that he judges us in this sense, that our eternal destiny is determined by our response to him. So it's, it's our response to his first coming that determines events at his second coming, when he comes truly to judge the world. So our eternal destiny is determined 
by how we respond to them. And the result in this verse is that one class of people, the blind, well, they are given sight. The other class, the seeing, are made blind. Now, we've seen that principle exemplified in the events of the chapter. You have the blind man who put himself into the hands of Christ, and by following Christ's instructions, he receives his sight. And you'll remember that that receiving of sight wasn't just a physical process, it was a spiritual process. We saw that clearly two weeks ago. So this man is not simply seeing now, but he is saved. But on the other hand, the Pharisees, although they see the glory of Christ to some extent, they become progressively blind to it. And they are the people that he's referring to primarily here as those who do see, but they are made blind. I have come, he says, that those who see may be made blind. And now, last time we saw this, that although we all see to some extent the glory of Christ, we see it in creation, we see it in conscience, we see it in scripture, we see it in the lives of his people and so on, we all see that light to some extent. We, we also saw that we are accountable to God for what we do with the measure of light that we have. That was the great truth that we saw last time. The reason for that is because of the spiritual principle that Christ himself enunciates. To whom much is given, of him much will be required. So what God requires of us is related to how much is given to us. That's the reason why, and I, I didn't mention this last time, and perhaps I ought to, but that's the reason why, as Christ says elsewhere, in these very solemn words, he says that it will be more tolerable for Sodom in the day of judgment than for Capernaum. Now, Capernaum is referred to in the Bible as Christ's own city. It was, if you like, the headquarters of his mission. And he himself describes it as the place where most of his mighty works were done. So it had seen many miracles and heard many sermons. Because of that, and because of their unbelief and their rejection of that light, the Lord says it will be more tolerable for Sodom than for Capernaum in the day of judgment. Now, I don't know of any more solemn words than that than those in the scriptures. And it's vital that we consider these words and in the light of the light that we've received. And we saw last week that we are far along the light spectrum. Has any generation been as privileged? Is it the case that it's going to be more tolerable for Sodom than for you? You need to think about that, and me too. But of course, our text here is saying more than that. It's not just saying that where much is given, much shall be required. It's going further. It's saying that those who see may be made blind. So it's a matter of losing the vision that we have. Now, for the sake of our 
souls, our immortal souls, we need to know how this blindness happens and why it happens. And of course, we, we need to, to know that to make sure it doesn't happen to ourselves. How are the seeing made blind? Why? Why are the seeing made blind? Now, the answer to that lies in uh, two other important spiritual principles. And uh, these principles are principles that we need to know, to remember, and to constantly apply. And they're principles that Christ himself again utters. Uh, in a way, I think we could step back a little and, and say that three spiritual laws are governing this verse, and three spiritual laws help us to understand it. The first is the one we've already seen, to whom much is given, much shall be required. Now, we looked at that. To whom much is given, much shall be required. The other two principles are these. Whoever has, to him shall be given. And the other is, whoever does not have, even what he has, shall be taken away from him. Now we read that from Christ's own lips after the parable of the talents. Let, let me repeat those two principles again. Whoever has, to him more shall be given. Whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken from him. Now, uh, let's look at the first of these. Whoever has, to him more shall be given. Now, the first question is, what does the Lord mean when he says, whoever has? Has what? Well, the reason I ask that is because it's easy to misunderstand what Christ means here. Um, as I mentioned a minute ago, he uses this saying in connection with the parable of the talents. Now, these talents, as we'll see later, they represent the gifts and the privileges that God gives us, natural and spiritual gifts. He, he gives us all a, a different number, different number of gifts and privileges. You'll remember that uh, the master gave five talents to one, he gave two to another, and he gave one to the third. Now, the one who had the five went and traded with them. We'll see that in a minute. And he doubled his talents to ten. The other had two, and he doubled his talents to four. The other one, of course, buried his talent. Now, it's when he speaks about the, one, the ones who doubled their talents that the Lord gives more. They are the ones who receive more. More is given to them. Why? Because they had. Not because they had five talents and two respectively, but because they doubled those talents to ten and to four. So to them who increase what they have, more is given. So when the Lord says, whoever has, to him shall be given, he doesn't mean whoever has gifts and privileges. What he means is whoever bears fruit from these gifts and privileges. In other words, whoever uses what he has, more 
will be given to him. So in other words, even in connection with light itself, whoever has doesn't mean whoever has light, but whoever uses the light to him more shall be given. So we need to use and employ what God gives us before God gives us anything else. And of course, when you think about it, that stands to reason. It can't mean whoever has gifts and privileges will receive more, because that's not true. But when we understand it that way, whoever bears fruit from the gifts and the privileges, they will receive more, then that becomes easier to understand. Now, let's apply this, and when we do so, it becomes more clear. Let's take it, first of all, in reference to people who have never heard the gospel. Now, I mentioned them last week, and of course, you're not in that category. Uh, That's one of the things that's so profound concerning your own experience and mine. We have light from every quarter shining upon us, but there are those who have never heard the gospel. They are at the low end of that light spectrum. In other words, all they have is light from the creation which testifies to the power and glory of Christ, and the light in their conscience, where the law of God is written. You'll remember that the light in your conscience, for example, that says thou shalt not kill, is not the voice of your conscience, its voice is the voice of Christ speaking to your conscience. Now that's all that these people, that used to be referred to as the heathen, that's all that they have. But apply this law to them, to him that has shall be given. The meaning there is to these people who only have creation and conscience. If they use that, they will receive more. In other words, if they recognize that there is a creator God, if they recognize that there is a moral law in their own hearts, that they are not living up to themselves, if they pray to that God, God will get the light to them. He will reach them with the word to see what they will do with that. If they reject that light, well, so be it. But if they embrace that light, they too shall be saved. Now, you shouldn't doubt God's power and his ability to get the word to anybody that he desires to get the word. If if anybody there is responding to the light, God will send light to them. Take somebody like the Queen of Sheba, for example. It's not that long since we were looking at her in some detail. She was searching for God through ancient proverbial sayings that had come down to her. And she was searching for the author of these proverbial sayings and the the great creator God. And God saw to it that that woman who lived hundreds of miles away, God saw to it she, she was living in Yemen, that part of the world now called Yemen. God saw to it that she heard of Solomon. Now, I don't know how she heard of him. Probably just through traders, perhaps even through ambassadors, because Solomon had brought Israel to such prominence that they probably had ambassadors in many different lands. But in any case, the point is that she hears about Solomon, and you'll notice that she responds to what she heard about Solomon that the wisdom of God was in him, and that he had great understanding of the nature of God and of the ways of God. And what does she do? Well, she goes to Jerusalem. She uses the light that she has, and the result is that she finds God. 
she saw the glory of Solomon. And of course, in that she saw the glory of a greater than Solomon. And she exclaimed that the half had not been told her. Now, that's not just a story of a woman finding God, is it? It's a story of God finding the woman. That's really what we have here. In other words, there is a cry from this woman's heart hundreds of miles away from where the knowledge of God was most concentrated and most disseminated. But God heard that cry. And where a woman was using light, God gave more light. That is a spiritual principle. You can count on it all the time. Take someone, someone like her, like Naaman, the commander of the Syrian army. He finds God through the witness of a young Israeli girl. What a strange providence that is. A, a Syrian raid on a border Israeli town takes a little girl captive. Through the witness of that little girl, Naaman hears about Elisha and so on, and he is healed. That's not simply a case of Naaman finding God. It's God finding him. Take someone like Melchizedek in the heathen city of Salem long before Israel were in the promised land. He is a priest king for the Lord in that ancient city. How? <laughs> How? Well, indeed, it's because God finds his people. And you can be sure that anyone who hasn't heard the gospel is condemned, judged on the light that they have. Not the light that they don't have, but on the light that they have. On the other hand, or simultaneously, if they use the light that they have, more light will be given to them. It's not, I often feel I need to say this, and I don't mean it in any way with, with a kind of hard heart or a dismissive attitude, but it's not the heathen that ought to concern you so much, but yourself, yourself. If it is the case that it is worse for Capernaum than for Sodom, it must be the case that it's worse for you than for the heathen. Is that not true? So it's a strange thing if you were to say to me, ah, oh, I can't believe the gospel because of these poor heathen. When the answer to that is that these poor heathen are not as poor as you. They're not as poor as you. Don't you worry about the justice of God's judgment. You can be sure, and one day it will be shown you that God is just. He's just in all our dealings with us in this life, and he will be just with us at the judgment seat. And he will never judge us on the basis of a light that we didn't have, but solely on the basis of what we did with the light that we had. And anyone who uses the light that they have, well, to them more shall be given. Because what he looks for is some kind of fruit. Whoever hath, whoever bears the marks of using what they've got, God will give them more. But this principle doesn't, of course, just apply to the heathen. It applies to us all. Think again of the talents. Think of yourself. Me of myself, too. If these talents represent, as they do, our gifts and our privileges, the natural gifts and privilege and the spiritual gifts and privilege, that whole package of things that God has given you. Think, think about them now. Just think about them for a little. That package of natural gifts and spiritual privileges that God has given you. Well, 
He expects you to trade with them. He expects you to put them to good use through prayer, through the power of the Holy Spirit, which you're supposed to ask for because you've heard of him. You've heard him preach. He expects you to put them to use, to enter the kingdom by faith, to grow in the kingdom, to bring forth fruit for the glory of God. But you'll notice that one of these men buried his talent. And he did so because of fear. Well, there were two reasons, actually, but certainly the first one is fear. His master was to be feared, not loved. You notice that? I knew that you were a hard man, he said. I knew that you were an austere man. Now, God, of course, when he responds, said, you knew that I was a hard man, an austere man. God doesn't there admit that he is so. He's just actually condemning him out of the words of his own mouth. In other words, if he had even known that, he should have done more about it. But this man's master was to be feared and not loved. That represents our religion. And be careful of this. It represents a religion of fear. The kind of fear that chokes labor rather than the faith that works by love. This represents what we could call a negative Christianity where nothing is ever ventured and nothing is ever gained. It's the kind of Christianity that sits on privileges and doesn't do anything with them. You'll know that in, you'll notice that in one respect, you see the man is faithful enough or somebody might consider him or call him faithful because he keeps the deposit. He's concerned to keep it intact and he keeps it intact. He wraps it and he hides it in the ground. But it's actually a lack of faithfulness that he's accused of. The master says to the other two people, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. But this man isn't faithful at all. He looks faithful. He wraps the deposit and wants to give it back. But he's not faithful enough to make it grow for the master. He fears the master. He doesn't love him. And how searching that is. Is your master more to be feared than he is to be loved? Is he not worth venturing something for? I think if you viewed God properly, you would take steps of faith. I think you would go out on a venture and not sit on a deposit. Friends, is there not something fundamentally wrong if that's your view of God? You may not admit to another that it's your view, but what if that is your view? What if I'm describing you here, that you are misrepresenting God like that? That God who expects to reap where he never scattered. That God is someone who commands us to make bricks without straw. That God is a harsh taskmaster. Is that your view? Well, if that's your view, have you, be, have you been saved? Do you think you possibly can be? Beware a religion of fear that does nothing but sit on a deposit. But you'll notice that the Lord highlights a second reason for this man's fruitlessness. And if anything, to be honest, this is a bit more frightening. Because the Lord doesn't call this man just unfaithful or wicked. He calls him lazy in verse 26. Did you notice that? When we read the parable, the Lord answered and said to him, you wicked and lazy servant. How awful is that? 
How awful is that? To perish because we had spiritual privileges, but we were too lazy. Too lazy to pray. Too lazy to read. Too lazy to witness. Too lazy to encourage another to do good. Too lazy to help in the church. Too lazy to wash the feet of saints. Too lazy. Lazy. And where do we stand in the light of that? What are we doing? What are we doing with our light and with our privileges and our talents? Just think of a few questions. Are you stuck in knowledge? Did you grow once and are you stunted? Why are you still at the stage after 30 years since you first started showing an interest that you're still lacking assurance every day? Why is that? Why are you relying on yesterday's knowledge, yesterday's anecdotes, yesterday's experience and yesterday's attainments? These are important questions. Now, if you're discouraged by that, and there's a way in which we could all be, you've got to turn it into an encouragement. And the way you can turn it into an encouragement is just by considering that right now, even through these words, God has just shone the light of the word onto your spiritual condition. And that can't be a bad thing. The best time for that to happen is now, not when it's too late, not when the spotlight comes upon you on the day of judgment and the truth is out and there is no going back from it. But right now, God has shone the light of his word onto your spiritual condition, and that can't be a bad thing. So don't be lazy. Don't be unfaithful. But be faithful and industrious and begin to work in faith for the Lord. Use what you have, and more will be given you. Now, you may compare yourself with someone else and say that you're not fruitful to the same degree. Well, Sometimes we're not the best judges of these things. Uh, you'll notice, though, that one person did receive five talents and another two and another one. Um, the one who received the five was more fruitful than the one who got the two. But you'll notice that they started from a different place. Even in the parable of the sower, the Lord said that the good seed would yield in some a hundredfold in others 60-fold, and in some 30. So the, the question is not really comparing yourself with another. It's doing something with what you've got. It's not the size of the harvest that matters at the end of the day. It's what you've done with what you had and what you're doing with what you've got. So the real message here is to beware of sloth and beware of a spirit of fear. Whoever has or uses what they have, more will be given. Second principle, well, this sounds more difficult. Whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken from him. That sounds more difficult because this second class of people, on the one hand, they don't have something. Whoever does not have, they don't have something. But on the other hand, they do have something. Even what they have shall be taken from them. 
So it sounds rather complicated. Whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken from. But it's not as difficult as it seems. Remember, having here means using your talents and having fruit. So here, when it says whoever does not have, well, that's simply a reference to people who have not used what they've been given. Whether these talents were big or small, they bore no fruit. And the result is that they lose what they do have. In other words, the gifts and the privileges that God gave them in the first place, they're going to be taken away too. All the natural and the spiritual gifts and privileges, all you've ever had, taken away. When? Well, the sad fact is that you can begin to lose them in this world. If, if you are resisting the light God's giving, if you're resisting it, you may well find that the light is withdrawn. The light is withdrawn. And your ability to see this light is lessened gradually. God will turn your blessings into a curse. He may do in this life. Sometimes he leaves people to go to the very end. I mean, as far as we, as far as we discover the rich man in the so-called parable of the rich man and Lazarus, he doesn't appear to have lost anything that he had prior to death. He fared sumptuously every day and he was clothed in purple and he had his friends with him at meals and so on. Nothing seems to have changed until the day he died. But God very often does turn our blessings into a curse. He takes us away from where the word of God is preached or he removes a preacher from you or the Bible that was once living and interesting becomes dull and remains closed. But there's no doubt that it's on the day of judgment that everything is lost. And by that, I mean everything. Everything you ever had. The man in this parable that we looked at a minute ago, he lost his talent. He lost it. The opportunities and the gifts and the abilities were given to somebody else. This man lost it. So will we. It's not just that we lose the glory of heaven that could have been ours. And, and that's the glory that's being preached to you in the gospel. It's an opportunity to enjoy, well, light to its fullest. I mean, in that purest light of thine, we clearly light shall see. It is to see light as we have never seen light before. To see the light that comes from the throne of God and the Lamb. That glory of heaven, which could have been yours. It's not just that you lose that, what you could have had. But you lose what you've got, the talent God gave you, the common graces of this world too, the good things that Paul tells us in Romans 2, the good things that were designed to lead you to repentance, the warmth and the comforts and the food and the friendship and the opportunities and the church and everything. You lose them. Things that were designed to lead you to repentance and to gratitude and to faith. But you didn't respond like that. And one day, nothing's left. The joy is turned to weeping. I, I mentioned the rich man a minute ago. 
how instructive he is. How instructive he is. He lifted up his eyes in torments. Where is everything that he had that made life so enjoyable? There's no comfort, no friends. There's no food. There is not even water. And above all, there's no hope. There's no hope. Now, does that prospect of being made blind and losing your light and losing your talents, does it frighten you at all? Does it trouble you? Your answer to that may be, well, it did once, but it doesn't really now. Well, you know what that's a sign of, friend? It's a sign of getting blind. If responding to the Lord means that some seeing are made blind, that's a sign that you're going blind. And if that doesn't worry you, well, nothing really will. On the other hand, if it does worry you, it means you're not yet blind. In fact, it's a reason for encouragement. It's a reason for encouragement. And this word to you is another shaft of light that you're to use in order to enter the kingdom through. What you need to do is to come to Christ, to cast yourself on him, to confess your sins to him, and to receive his leading and his forgiveness and his mercy. It's all yours. So these are the three principles that guide us in understanding the verse. Let me go over them again. To whom much is given, much shall be required. Whoever has, to him shall be given. Whoever has not, from him shall be taken, even that which he has. Now, last week, in, in God's providence, uh, we were hindered from looking at the things that I, I wanted to look at with you. I was frustrated at only having one end of the day, but the Lord is wise. And uh, I realized that there was another message to give in connection with this verse. And um, tonight, with God's help, I want us to look at how this applies to the people in the passage. Let's look more closely at the Pharisees in John chapter 9. We haven't really looked at what they've said and what they've done. Uh, let's look tonight, with God's grace, at how they deal with Christ and how they deal with the blind man. And that will help us to see the pro well, I shouldn't say the progress, the regress of those who are rejecting the light. Oh, may we not be of that number. While the light of the world is with you, walk in the light. Walk in the light while you have the light, that you may be the children of God. May he bless our meditation on his word.